Nehemiah. A prophet, but not really a prophet. An ordinary person who was doing an ordinary job, although a, an exalted job as a cupbearer for a king, who saw a need, a need way back in Jerusalem. So he left that position of honor, that job. And he traveled to do a task that he believed God had called him to do. And just like you and I, and we've talked about this the last few weeks, just like you and I, first of all, for Nehemiah, he had to do some realigning of his focus. He had to do some thinking in terms of what was to be his new and main focus. It was involving thinking in terms of God's purposes, not necessarily his preferences. I'm sure that for Nehemiah, he realized that it was going to be a lot more comfortable if he stayed right there on his job being the cupbearer for the king. But preferences weren't really what mattered. What mattered was that God had called him and given him a task to do. And as we got to the 8th chapter, and the people found the Word of God and they heard it read to them again, they realized also that they had to do some rethinking in terms of, of their focus. They were supposed to be celebrating the festival of booths. And their booths weren't even as comfortable as what modern tents would be. And they were to construct those and they were actually to go out and live in those for a whole week just as a, a memory, a, a reminder of how the people had to live when they had left Egypt in the wilderness. And so they set their preferences aside and realized that they had something to do that was God's purposes. It's what Jesus was talking about in the New Testament, I believe, when He, on, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Secondly, for Nehemiah, it had to do with thinking in terms of responsibility. Some obligations that he felt imposed upon him with the knowledge and the abilities that he had. He felt he needed to get down to Jerusalem and get those walls built. Ezra had gone back and they had rebuilt the temple, but the temple was standing there unprotected. The city was unprotected. And then again in the last chapter, as we looked at it, we saw how the people themselves, after hearing God's Word, realized they had to take on some obligations that they had forgotten about. And one of those primarily had to do with restructuring their finances. They needed to make sure that they once again were beginning with giving God that what was an obligation. Their tithes and their offerings. But then thirdly, we talked about how those decisions needed to be made, keeping in mind, what's, what's the long-term effect? 
And you know, uh, going back to Kate's prayer, that's something that we need to be considering as we start thinking in terms of, of getting back to things under whatever normal will ever be again. Getting back to uh, the idea of, of what is best in terms of the long term, not just the short term. We, the church, are the dwelling place of God. I, I listened yesterday to Aaron Brockett, who's minister down in Big Church in Indianapolis, the Traders Point Christian Church. And, and Aaron wanted to make the, the point clear that Traders Point Christian Church had never closed. Yes, they weren't gathering together for their big, massive Sunday morning worship services, but the church had never closed. And, and we have never closed. We have been here to serve. We have been here to worship together, whether it's on online, using Facebook Live, or, or whether it's the few that have come to sing together so that the, the online service sounded a little bit more normal. But we've been here. We've been in the office each day trying to make sure that as those calls came in with needs, we were here to meet those needs. Realigning our focus, thinking in terms of responsibilities instead of rights, and thinking in terms of the long-term effect. Now today, I'm going to still use that same passage again. Um, as a kickoff, but we're going to look at actually chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, 26. Now I promise you, I am not going to read that to you. It is basically very similar to how Matthew begins with the so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. But this one is even longer. It's a list of names. An extensive list of names. And the temptation actually is to bypass it. Just to set it aside and, and let's, let's move on to the next passage. But with my understanding of Scripture, and I know not everybody believes the same way, with my understanding of Scripture, I believe that what we have in this book, God intended for us to see and read and know about. Even this extensive list of names. So I want to think about these names, and you can go and read them later. I want to think about these names under the idea of, do you remember? Do you remember? And I want to begin with a little bit of an object lesson. Uh, I'm tempted to ask Mark to go over and, and read, but we've got this plaque on the wall back in the sign. And it's a list of names. We've got four by... 26? Looks like 12 down. So that would be uh, 48 on each of the first two boards. And another one that's almost completed. Well over 100 names that we could very easily say, do you remember? Did you remember this person? And I think that's a part of what is in, in front of us today with this passage. I think that Nehemiah is writing this out so that 
so that there are some things that we can later come back and look at and say, man, I, I, I remember that person. And I, I didn't know they did that. I mean, it begins with, I think, the importance of history wrapped all around it. And if you'll recall, a few weeks ago, I talked about the importance of history and I used a metaphor. And I think it's a metaphor that's, that's very uh, illuminating for us. It's not unique to me. I didn't come up with it. I wish I had. A man by the name of Leonard Sweet had this as a part of his introductory materials on his webpage for quite a while. It's what he calls the, the, the image of how the swing can show us how we as a church should be moving into the future. And the idea is that when we swing, the first thing we do when we get to the back of the arch is we lean back. We lean back. We lean back into our history. All these people that were a part of the church and then once we lean back and remember what they believed and why they believed it, then we kick our legs out and we move into the future. But we, we can't move into the future without remembering who we are and where we were. This is all a part of it. It has to do with our sense of identity. These people all realized that they had a responsibility. It wasn't just who they were, but what their responsibility was and what that meant in terms of their commitment. And if nothing else, the mere mention of their name in an extensive list like this, somebody could look at it sometimes later and say, you know, Grandpa was just kind of an ordinary man, but obviously... He was important to God because he's right here in this list in the Bible. And I think that where this list comes from, the context for it, is found back in the seventh chapter, the fourth verse. There, the focus is on the city was large and wide, but people within it were few. There was a very practical issue involved, and that was safety. The more spread out, the less number of people, the fact that the walls were just barely being rebuilt and accomplished meant that somehow they needed to get some more people into that. Now you can think of it in terms of, of their personal safety, and that's fine. But I think that there's another way that we can think about it. And that's the safety of the future. You've probably heard somebody say at one time or another, the church is only one generation away from being extinct. All it takes is for those of us who are here and joining together for us to pass away and our children and our grandchildren not become involved. And very quickly the church can start shutting its doors. In the area that we were in over in Illinois when we first moved there, there were two Christian churches and Church of Christ within 10 miles of our house. Those, two of those, there were three total, the one we were at and two others, 
Two of those three churches closed their doors. And so there's a sense in which that safety involves a safety of our future and, and our continuing to do what had, God has called us to do. So as we think about this, I want to think about it in terms of not only the importance of their identity, but what that means first of all in terms of who they were. And I think the one thing that Nehemiah is very clear in making sure we understand is that these are just some ordinary people. The church, the kingdom of God is made up of ordinary people. You might want to write this verse down, go back and look at it again later. It comes from Paul's writing. His letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, hey, we're just a bunch of ordinary people. Because really... The focus wasn't on being wise in the world standards. The focus wasn't on how powerful we were or how noble our birthline is. It has to do not with any of those things, but it has to do with not even our dramatic commitment. But what it has to do with is our devoted consistency. I think I told you this before. I'm pretty sure I have. But uh, Neil Larimore did a study while he was here. And he did the same study at a few other churches that he was at, serving as an interim and also down where he was at at Milford. It was a study of attendance. And Beverly helped him with it, showing uh, who and all in terms of the attendance records that were kept. But in all three churches that Neil did the study of, do you know what the number one factor was in terms of the less numbers present, the lower attendance averages? The number one factor was people who at one time were attending four out of five, seven out of eight, who were consistent in terms of their worship practices, those same people were still coming, but they had slipped from only missing one Sunday occasionally to being gone half or even more than that at the time. And if you think about it, even, even in the three years that we've been here, I can think of, of several who you know, are, were pretty regular and then all of a sudden missed here and there and due to one reason or another, uh, are just not with us on a regular basis. God wants us to be consistent. Ordinary people with ordinary talents, but with devoted consistency. Secondly, I think one of the other things that comes out in this passage is not only that they were ordinary people, but just the sense of what they were doing. I mean, it's mentioned in the Bible what these people were doing. 
So maybe we need to take note of it. First of all, for instance, verse 2 of chapter 11. These people were blessed, it says, just because they willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, that's getting to be the case in some small towns. Some small towns are still existing gratefully just because some people are, are willing to stay there and live there. Others are moving out of the big cities saying, no, we, we want to get out into the country and, and, and re-inhabit those small towns, reinvigorate some of those small villages and those small businesses that are in them. Some of these people were there and blessed just because they were willing to live there. Then look at verse 12. Here, of the priests, Jediah the son of Joyarib, Jacob, Sarahiah the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of... All of these names, and you can see why I didn't read it all. But they are mentioned simply because they were people who were doing the work of the house. The work in the temple. Now, I know, and, I, and so I'm not going to say it, but, but there are people that are doing things around this building that to think, here's somebody whose name's in the Bible just because they were doing those tasks that work in the, in the temple. But that's what keeps the kingdom going. That's what keeps the church going. And verse 16, not just those who are working inside, but verse 16, Shabbatiah and Jezebel of the chiefs of the Levites, they were working on the outside work of the house of God. Now, I know they're thinking in terms of the temple building being the house of God, and, and we think in terms of God dwelling within us. But still, just in terms of the building itself and the edifice, what we try to maintain. There are a lot of things that need to be done and need to be done on a regular, consistent basis for the church to keep going. Verse 17 might seem a little bit more important. These were the people who were the leaders of the praise and, and giving thanks. Praising and, and praying. And verse 19, sometimes we make light of this, but Mattaniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, he was the, or excuse me, that's the one I just read. Verse 19, the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers, they were just keeping watch at the gates. Security. You know, I, I hear and read a lot about different churches, most of them the, the larger mega churches, and, and all of the security they have in place. Well, here we are thousands of years later, and, and, and but they were doing it then. They had people who were keeping watch uh, that, that are listed and mentioned. Verse 22, again, the singers in the temple. And then if we skip to chapter 12, uh, the list is here about priests and Levites, but, but it doesn't stop. In chapter 12, it talks in verse 24 of chapter 12, it talks about the people who had just made the decision to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David. 
Just those who are willing to do what they have been told to do and to continue doing that. So, when we think about importance and the importance of, of the names that are on our wall back in the corner, I can't tell you what each of those individuals did. Some of them, some of those names I recognize. But a lot of them I don't. But I guarantee you that somebody can look at that list and say, well, you know, this person, they did this. This person, they were always faithful about making sure this was done or leading in this way. So, what's the issue? We talked about the fact that they're just ordinary people and, and uh, they're ordinary in terms of their identity as well as in terms of the tasks they're doing. What's the issue? And again, I think the issue is kind of twofold. First of all, I think the point that's being made is that what is important is not how famous we are, but how faithful we are. Philippians, the fourth chapter. There's a problem going on in the church. And Paul names a couple of names. He names the name Yodi and Syntyche. A couple of ladies. A couple of ladies that were having a problem and fighting. And he calls on them to get it straightened out. Not just for the sake that you all need that to be done, but, but you're disrupting the church by your fighting with each other. Get it taken care of. And then he also mentions Clement, a co-worker. But then there's a line there that I like. Because it's a line that includes many of us. It's a line that simply says, and the rest of my fellow workers. See, they didn't have to be named by name. That wasn't important. That wasn't the issue. But I can tell you this, often that is the issue. Again, in just the three years that I've been here, when we've done different things, Kay's gotten a call that said, well, uh, so-and-so's name didn't get listed in that. Well, what about so-and-so's name? It's not about getting listed and being famous and being mentioned. It's about being faithful. And we as a church need to rise up and be faithful. But then there's a second one that I see in this. And this has to do with the issue of not how powerful we may or may not be. I can tell you of a church in Louisville, Kentucky, a church that was averaging over 200 that within a period of 18 months closed its doors because a power struggle developed on the church board. And the men started fighting with each other over control and power. And during one of those, one of the men who was more sincere said, guys, stop. We need to pray. And one of the other guys said, well, it's come to that. And that's where it should have started. Powerful 
remember when Jesus welcomed the 70 back? He had sent them out two by two with tasks that they needed to do. And he welcomed them back and, and they started talking about, you know what? We were casting out demons in your name. Talking about all the great things that were able to be done. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, you know what? You don't need to be rejoicing in anything that you're doing other than this. That your names are written in heaven. That your names are written in heaven. We as a congregation have a few people who are fairly consistent in stopping by, giving, and then saying, use this where it's needed, but we don't want anybody to know where it came from. Not concerned about being viewed as important. Not concerned about how powerful that might make them seem. Just concerned about serving in a consistent and faithful way. And here's what I love. And this is what I'm going to close with. I hear, and I've been reading lately a lot about... Uh, this argument about whether or not we're saved by faith alone, by allegiance alone. The Bible does say you are saved by faith, not by works. But then the very same passage that says that goes on to say, so that you may do good works. What we do is important. And I love the sixth chapter of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews is talking about the warning of falling away of tasting that goodness of what it means to be a Christian and then, then falling away from that and how hard it is if that happens for you to ever come back ever desire to come back and then here's what the writer of Hebrews says it's a reminder. It's an encouragement. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. What's the verse talking about? If you think about it in terms of salvation, what is this passage talking about? It's not talking about being saved by what we have between our ears. What we know in our heads. How much we know about God's goodness and God's grace. No, it's talking about God is not going to overlook the things that we're doing. The way we're showing love. The activity that we're a part of. And that's what we need to do as a congregation. We need to step it up a notch. To move from being focused on our belly buttons, on ourselves, and start thinking about how we can focus on others who are in need. How we can serve others who, who aren't here. 
Others who, who might not be dressed as well as we are or, or who might not even smell as good as we are. They might need uh, an extra bath or something. But you know what? They don't need to clean up to come to church. They need to come to church and get to know who God is and get to know how God loves them and get to know how we love them. God will do the work of cleaning up. I've seen it. I'm going to close with a little story. It's a story about what happened down at a little church camp down in Kentucky. A little church camp called White Mills Christian Service Camp. The guy who was standing with me when this happened is now in charge of the property and maintenance of that church camp. I think this incident might have had a lot to do with that. We were at a life recruit week and they put us on a bus and they took us into town and dropped us off at a strip mall of stores and said, we want you to go in groups of two, but we want you to witness to somebody about what Jesus has done for your life. Because most of you that are here for this week have made a decision to go into service for the Lord in one way or another. And so we did. And Lewis Bauer was right there by my side. And uh, another group of two guys came by and they pointed at a motorcycle guy with leathers on with patches on the back. And they jided and they said, hey, won't you two go witness to him? And I looked at Bob and I said, why don't we? And Lewis and I went over and we started talking to that guy. And we had some little tracks that had been prepared and given to us. And we gave him that track and we talked to him and he said, three times, I can't, I can't believe you guys are telling me about this. I can't believe you guys are talking to me about this stuff. I mean, we're pretty different. And we made a mistake. And we got told we made a mistake. And we got reprimanded for our mistakes. But we told him where our church camp was. With all of those teenagers. And guess what? He showed up on his motorcycle by himself at the church camp. And one of the adults who was there that week, and I believe Bo Deaton was there that week. I need to get a hold of him and ask him if he remembers that incident. But I think he was one of the ones there that week. They got into the side and started talking to him. That day when he got there on his motorcycle, he didn't have goggles on. He had a helmet on, but it was one of the old converted Nazi-looking type helmets. All of the lights weren't on his bike the way they should have been. But they talked to him that day. And they gave him a Bible. He came back the next day. And as you looked at that Bible, you could tell that a lot of the pages had been opened up and held back. And some reading had been done. And when he came back, all the lights on his motorcycle were working the way they were supposed to. And he not only had a helmet on, but he had goggles on. And he came in and he talked. The, the, the men of the, the leaders of the camp met him again. Of course, Bob and I went over and said, hey, hi. You know, 
This isn't the end of the story. But this is the penultimate end, the, the end before the end. He was baptized in White Mills Christian Camp Swimming Pool that day. And that year, the teen convention was in Louisville, Kentucky. And he came with a group of teenagers to the, the Kentucky Teenage Youth Christian Camp uh, Convention that summer. Why? Because Bub and I, well, we just did some dramatic thing out of our commitment. No, we were scared to death. We were just trying to be obedient to what the leader said, but then also not willing to be challenged by a couple other teenagers. Now, why did that man get converted? Again, not because of Bob and I. Not even because of the adults who met him back at the church camp. That guy got converted because God's Spirit started using those people and using His Word to convict him of the way he had been living. And the truth of his conviction was seen in the change in his life. That he was willing to, to leave the gang stuff and even make a concerted effort to bring young people to the teen convention. Just ordinary guy. Some pretty extraordinary talents instead of, in terms of the work he could do on a motorcycle over dark. But somebody who was convicted by God's Word, just like we saw in Nehemiah chapter 8, where they found the Word of God, they read it, studied it, and they were changed. Do you remember? you remember old so-and-so? Why do you remember? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today again looking at, reading, a portion of your word that in many ways might just seem like a boring list of names, but yet a passage that reveals to us some things about the type of people and the type of faithfulness and the type of work that, that you want us to do. Nothing, nothing fantastic, nothing powerful, nothing overwhelming, just some consistent, devoted acts of service. Help us to learn so that we can win others for our Lord and Savior, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, into your kingdom. And now as we sing our song of commitment, Father, help us as well to be convicted. In Jesus' name, Amen. Open my eyes.